Hi, everybody. This is Charlie Guarino. Welcome to another edition of Tech Talk SMB. Today, I'm very happy to have with me, well, if I look at the bio, I see a software developer at IBM working on enabling open source software packages for IBM I, but quite literally in the last 30 minutes or so, there's been a change in position. And that is that this person now is now a advisory software developer at IBM. I'm speaking about none other than Mr. Mark Irish. Mark, what a treat it is to have you here today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Charlie. All right, so this new title jumps right at me, right out at me, and I have to ask how how does somebody go? First of all, how does somebody go from software developer to having a position as an advisory software developer? And secondly, what is an advisory software developer? Sure. Well, when you start out at IBM, usually as a developer, you start at what's called band six. And that is just the run of the mill software developer. That's what I started out as back in May of 20, 2018. Um, about a year and a half after that, I was promoted to band seven, which is where I've been for a little while. And, and that was staff software developer, staff software engineer. I'm not sure what I had on LinkedIn. And then, yeah, just today I got another promotion. And I got bumped up to band eight, which is the advisory software developer role. So, yeah, you know, it's just a, a mark of IBM's confidence in me, right? That they're saying, we want to invest more in your career. We think that, you know, you're doing good things. Uh, keep doing the good work. And they're giving me, they're, they've already telling me that they're going to give me more responsibility and more work to do. So they'll just keep piling it on until I tell them that I've had enough, I think. So it's a, it's a true recognition, in my view, of uh, what you're contributing, not to IBM, but to the community at large. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also a, uh, you know, a sign of IBM's investment in the platform itself, right? We have only so many uh, promotions, only so many hires that go around for things like this. And, and IBM is saying, hey, we need to put this, these resources into the IBMI space, especially open source on IBMI. Right, which is obviously, in my view, one of the surely one of the fastest growing areas of growth on our platform. You know, Mark, another thing that caught my attention just in reading the rest of your bio here was I see I see a, a bachelor's of science in, in computer science, and that obviously makes sense given your your role at IBM. But I was kind of struck by your master's degree, and that's in, in anthropology. Yeah, that's and, right. And that seems, I mean, I mean, I know a lot of people who start start college, who graduate with different degrees, but to have a master's degree in something that's totally unrelated seems a little more, um, for lack of a better term, obscure, but I don't mean it in a bad way. It's just seemingly different than something, you know, I would think it would, maybe the reverse might have happened, starting out in anthropology and then focusing more on CS. So how did, how did that happen? Yeah, so, so my father is an IBMer. He's been at IBM for nearly 40 years. And so when I went to college, I did what a lot of young men do. And I rebelled against what my father stood for, right? And so I went and I got a bachelor's degree. I triple majored in uh, classical languages, biblical languages, and anthropology. Triple. Loved Indiana Jones growing up, wanted to be outside, wanted to do archaeology. Got into a PhD program at the University of California, San Diego for anthropology. And as I was there, they had a uh, opportunity or, or kind of a, a 
an institution, you know, they had a they had a grant from the National Science Foundation basically to do cyber archaeology, where they were trying to blend technology with archaeology. And so I kind of wanted to be part of that. And so I started taking some computer science classes with a bunch of undergrads, right? I was 26 years old with all these 18 year olds, which at the time I felt old, but now that I'm 33, I realize I was still pretty young. Um, and I just really, I really gravitated towards it. I really loved the work. I really loved, you know, the problem solving. I really loved just that sort of whole, you know, way of thinking. And, and so after I got my master's degree, I realized I really didn't want to get a PhD. So I dropped out and I went back to school to get another bachelor's degree. And as fate, you know, happens, I got hired at IBM immediately out of, out of college and uh, was working in the building one, one away from where my dad was working. So, wow. So yeah. you're clearly well-credentialed to work on the real topic of the conversation, which is Node.js. Node all these, all these uh, credentials you're, you're expounding here are really, you know, put you in the, in the, in the right spot at the right time for this. Sure, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, actually, just, I mean, just one before we get into the, into the thick of it, I mean, you mentioned problem solving and things like that. So I, I guess in, given that, then I'm, I'm not surprised because, you know, really in, in that regard, almost any major that, that focuses on problem solving, be it anthropology or anything else, even music uh, composition, for example, you know, there's, you really couldn't make a case that it, it almost runs lockstep with somebody who would be working in IT. Absolutely. And, you know, I had a conversation recently at um, Common in or Power Up in New Orleans with Steve Will, you know, the CTO of IBMI, chief architect. Um, and we were talking about how some of the best developers aren't the people who go in with their, you know, big math pedigrees and computer science pedigrees. They're the people that do other things, liberal arts degrees, and then they just have a passion for, for computer science on the side, right? It's, it's those people that kind of have a broad perspective of the world around them that tend to be kind of the best problem solvers and have the, the best perspective. I agree. I mean, I do, I do recall somebody who uh, was working in IBM in the 60s. Uh, I, I wasn't working in IBM in the 60s or working in the 60s at all, quite frankly. But, but they told me that there were no, there really wasn't even a CS degree, but, and they were hiring language and math majors. Mm -hmm. So I guess, for, you know, so anyway, enough about that. The, um, the real reason why you're here is, <laughs> is because of Node.js. And uh, that's where there seems to be, or not seems to be, I know there's a high degree of interest in this technology, but I think it also is that the interest is there, certainly, but there's also perhaps even for lack of a better term, a shroud of mystery around what Node is. And it's only because it's still, you know, while it's been out for quite some time, it's still, in my view, you know, one of the newer kids on the block. And, yeah. you know, a lot of people aren't really exposed to it that often. So there's, there are still a lot of questions that, that are surrounding it, which I think you, you can, you'll be very helpful now to fill in the blanks for us. Absolutely. So, it uh, so my very first question is, what exactly is Node.js? And, you know, where do we, you know, let's start from, start. Let's start from the beginning. What is Node.js, right? Sure. So Node.js is nothing more than a JavaScript runtime. So it runs on your computer. For most of the people listening, that'll be an IBMI system, right? And basically, it just allows you to run JavaScript code. And that JavaScript code can do things with the computer, like you know, interact with the file system or you know, make I.O. calls to uh, system devices, talk to the database make uh, network requests, things like that. So for a long time, JavaScript was kind of uh, isolated to just the browser, right? 
you're talking about JavaScript, you're thinking about people running these things on their browser, maybe they're making Ajax calls, which are these asynchronous calls in the browser. Maybe they're validating some form data, stuff like that. But somebody had the bright idea, well, hey, what if we could take that same language, but make it do the types of work that you know, PHP would do, or that uh, Java server, web server would do, or that even something like C or C++ code could do, right? So it's just the same language that's been around for a long time, but now it's just in a new environment doing different types of work. So is it is it fair then to say, because one definition I've heard that I've, I've kind of stuck with through the years is that Node is essentially kind of like JavaScript or almost, you know, is JavaScript, I, I suppose, in a browser, whereas Node is that, that same technology is running on. So it's server side versus browser side. Is that is that a fair definition? That's a very fair definition. A lot of times you'll hear people say that Node.js is a JavaScript server, right? They'll say it's the server. And JavaScript, I would say, or sorry, uh, Node.js, I would say 80%, 90% of the time, people are using it as a server, right? They're using it as a web server to serve up content, the back end of some sort of web service, REST API, something like that. But it really is agnostic to what you do with it. I have personal projects where I do stuff and it's not really communicating with a network at all, right? It's just doing some piece of computational work for me. So it's a, it's a pure just batch language at that point. It's, it's a computation. Yeah, pretty language. much. Yeah, it's just a scripting language if you want. Yeah. Right, right. So is there a, a real distinction then that you can make between Node and JavaScript? So Node is just kind of the environment that JavaScript's running in. So when you go to a website, right, and your browser's running some sort of JavaScript code, usually if you're using something like Chrome or Microsoft Edge, it's probably using uh, Google's V8 JavaScript engine, right? That's what's interpreting the JavaScript and doing the actual work. Node.js actually runs with that exact same engine, and then it's just built to have hooks into the operating system, right? You don't want your browser to have those same hooks because then people could do sort of all sorts of malicious things, right? But if you have some sort of backend service, now Node.js as that backend service, backend service can do those things I talked about, right? Like talking directly to the file system or, or making um, network network calls. So, all right, that's interesting. So how, I guess my next question then would be, so how and where is it used? I mean, I get it's running on a server, I understand that, but where does, where, where is its place maybe in a, in a, in a modern technology stack? Sure. So if you're talking about the technology stacks that you and I interact with most frequently, right? People running RPG programs, and then they probably have some sort of front-end web service running maybe Apache with PHP or some Java web server. Node.js takes, usually takes the place of that kind of Apache and PHP part of the equation or the Java web server part of the equation, right? It's sitting there. It can talk down to, talk down to has a negative connotation, but it can talk into RPG and COBOL and other IBMI resources. And then it can really easily and natively talk to the wider, you know, worldwide web, the internet, making those, those types of HTTP calls, serving up your content. Well, the good news is RPG and COBOL, they have very thick skin, so they can handle the, the, Yeah, they, the they better. They, they get enough <laughs> flack, so. Right. They're still standing, doing quite well, in fact, and being enhanced. So this is good. Um, okay. You know, one thing I, I, you know, I've seen, I've been to some of your sessions, Mark, and one thing that really comes through to me is just your passion for, for Node. I, I mean, I just, you know, people, and people tend to gravitate towards that passion because they see how excited you are about it and, and 
you know, and, and how committed you want to, to this technology. But what do you speak to that for a minute? You know, what, what do you attribute all that passion from? Or how, how did you develop such a passion for Node? What, what was, was there something that was so unique about it that you really said, oh my gosh, this is where I want to be playing right now? Well, back when I was a grad student taking those undergrad classes, I had a class where I had to develop some sort of web application, right? And we were told we had to use Node.js. And I resisted it, and I resisted it, and I resisted it. And I, in my mind, I was thinking, why would I ever want to use this? I have an Apache server. I have PHP. I know how to use them. I can do the same stuff with them. Uh, but, you know, probably not during that class, but sometime afterwards, I started playing with Node again. And it really just, it clicked with me, right? And it, the, the simplicity of it, the ease of use just became so clear to me that now I can, if I have an idea for something I want to do, something I want to program, I can start up a Node.js project and go from zero to some sort of minimal viable product within you know, a much smaller amount of time than I would with something like Apache or PHP. It's a really simple technology to use. And one of the reasons uh, that it is really simple is there's a lot of code reuse that goes on out there, right? There's this uh, website called npmjs.com part of NPM, which is the used to be called the node package manager. Now it doesn't really stand for anything. Uh, but basically you can go out there and you can find packages that other people have written that implement a lot of the functionality of things you want to do, right? People have written entire web servers. People have written frameworks for doing REST APIs. So you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You can just focus on your business logic, the application, you know, the fun stuff that you want to, that you want to implement yourself. You know, it's interesting, Mark. You mentioned uh, I my very next question. Actually, in, in my in my uh, research in preparing for this podcast, the term that I kept bumping into was, in fact, NPM. And, and you just said it already. And I, it seems to me that you you cannot have a no discussion without at some point having you know mentioning those three letters. So, what are they? You know, I mean, again, you said uh, Node Package Manager, but what exactly? Is, even is a package for those who may not even be aware of, of that. And how does NPM play into the into this conversation? Sure. So, so Node.js comes pre-shipped with a number of APIs. And those APIs are very simple, right? They're things like talking to the file system. They're things like throwing errors. They're things like making HTTP requests. But making HTTP requests in a very, you know, you have to build it yourself kind of way. So what people have done is they've written these packages, which are kind of small, to large chunks of reusable code that you can go and download and plug into your own application that wrap all of that API functionality and expose some new APIs that do, you know, much higher level types of work, right? So if you wanted to make some sort of REST API server, right, you don't want to have to implement all the HTTP calls yourself. Well, somebody's gone and written very simple H, uh, REST API servers where you can just reuse their libraries, right? You just have to go and download their package and read their documentation and integrate it into your, your application and, and you're off to the races. Now you have a REST API server. So you pushed now the next button of mine and that is that, and I, I know a button of concern or a topic of concern, I should say, from a lot of people, you know, CIOs and the like, and now we're using other people's packages. And you said it, those are the words you just used. Mm-hmm. And that clearly in my mind begs the question, how can I trust other people's packages? You know, how secure is it? And how, how, can, I, how can I know that it's, it's quality code and it's not going to corrupt my existing you know, application or database or whatever the case happens to be? Sure. 
it's definitely a paradigm shift, right? To, to be able to trust somebody out there to download some code, to use it in your business critical application, right? There are a number of things that kind of can waylay those fears. So first, it's open source, right? All of the code that's up on NPM, the, the code for those packages is open source. So you can go and you can pick through it and you can see, okay, this is exactly what the code does, right? Other people can look at it as well. And if they find bugs, if they find uh, security vulnerabilities, they will notify not only the package managers, but NPM itself. The, the package maintainers, I should say, and NPM itself. And then there'll be like a security advisory for that package. And every once in a while, you're supposed to go and run a command called NPM audit. And it will say, oh, there's some security vulnerabilities for your packages. Make sure you download the latest version, right? So there's, there's safeguards that are out there. I like to think of some of the kind of the smell tests that people should do, right? If you go and you find a package that hasn't been updated in six years and that has 30 downloads every week, this, this is data that you can see directly on NPM, you probably don't want to download that package, right? Even if it's not a malicious package, there's probably not a high level of maintenance with that package, right? So there might be undiscovered um, vulnerabilities in it, right? But a lot of these NPM packages, a lot of the big ones that you'll hear about, big web servers like Express or, or happy.js, they have probably 50 million downloads a week. They probably have thousands or tens of thousands of contributors, people looking at every line of code, right? That's, that's being delivered. So there's a lot of eyeballs on this stuff. And though it may seem scary that it's open source, it actually produces a much higher level quality of code than something that's developed kind of in a black box that you don't, that you don't have uh, purview to see. By, by one or a small group of developers. Exactly. Um, just so we're clear, I heard 50 million and you said a week. Uh, were those words meant to go together? Yeah, we can go. We can go. Look, I'm going to go look right now. MPMJS. So I know that the, a package that I maintain gets 7,000 downloads a week. And it's not a very big package. So let's see. Express. Oh, I, I'm sorry. It was only 25 million. But still. You know, I expect a man of your integrity and your title to have uh, to, to be <laughs> to get to get it right on within a million at least. Twenty five million is a uh, you know paltry compared to that fifty million now. So there are <laughs> over two million packages on NPM, and there is some there is some dashboard where you can go and see how many downloads there are every week. But it's it's in the like you know four hundred million something I want to say. Well, that's a real number. It's still, it's a real number. It's, it's the largest repository of software you can probably say in the universe, right? Because nobody can prove me wrong. I don't know if sure. there exists any outside of earth. So <laughs> sure. Why not? I'll bite. Why, why not? Um, so within the context of IBM, I, uh, what, what, what packages are there that are specific to, you know, our universe, you know, for just to, reuse one of your words, what, what packages should we be looking at or, or that we would be working with, I should say, what, what are they named and you know, where do we get them, for example? Sure. So just the same way that everybody delivers their packages on NPM, IBM also delivers the packages directly there on NPM. Um, so we have, I think, four packages, four main packages that we maintain, the, the IBM I open source software team. Um, Probably the oldest one, the one with the oldest pedigree is called IDB Connector. 
IDB dash connector. The IDB stands for iDatabase. And it is a database connector based on what is called the CLI inter interface. I think that's redundant, like ATM machine, but call level interface basically. And that's a way to call into DB2, right? The thing about this package is it only works on IBM I itself, right? So if you're developing on a Linux machine, it won't work on your Linux machine. It needs to be run on IBM I in PACE, the portable application solutions environment. There is another package that kind of sits on top of that package called IDBP connector. This connector uh, reuses a lot of the same functionality. In fact, it requires the IDB connector, but it adds pooling support for your connections. And it also adds promise support for your connections, which is a very deep kind of Node.js uh, concept that I won't get into too much here, but it's, it's just a little more modern way of programming um, of Node.js. You can think of it kind of as, you know, RPG versus RPG free. It's kind of the more RPG free, you know, modern way of doing things. So those are the two main what we call CLI connectors, right? Both of those only run on IBM I. And you would use uh, one in, you would use one or the other? If you use IDBP connector, it downloads IDB connector for you. It knows that it requires it as a dependency. It will download it as part of it. It requires but not, but not, but, but not vice versa. But not vice versa. Okay. Just want to clarify that. Okay. Uh, as far as database connectors go, there's also our ODBC connector. So ODBC is this, this database connectivity API that's existed for 30 years, right? It's maintained by Microsoft. It's bigger than just IBM I, right? It's, it's a uh, kind of database agnostic API that database vendors can implement drivers for. Anyways, all of that's to say it's very universal. Lots of people use it. We have a, a ODBC driver for IBM I and we maintain this ODBC package on NPM. What all that means is you can download that on your Linux machine, you can download it on your Windows machine, your Mac OS machine, or your IBM I machine. You can run your same application in all those places. It will run the same in every spot, right? So if you have a non-IBM I server that you wanna communicate with IBM I, uh, you can do that with this package. If you wanna develop on your local workstation, right? That's how I usually develop. I run the node uh, process on my Linux workstation, works great. And then if you want to go and in production, plop it on your IBM I system, you just drag and drop the application and, and everything works. All right. So for those who are listening so far up until this point, and they're sold on the, on the concept of using this in some capacity in their shops, where do they go next? How do they get node loaded on IBM I? Well, I'm, I'm just going to, I'm just going to butt in one second because I did mention sure. there were four packages, but I only mentioned three of them. The other one is called iToolkit and it wraps around what's called XML service, which is part of the HTTP license program that IBM delivers, right? And it's basically just a way to communicate with your IBM I system through these big XML payloads. And the iToolkit basically generates those payloads for you and then parses those payloads for you on the Node.js side. So it's just kind of a wrapper around that XML service. So I mean, before, okay, then, then let me then let me interrupt myself then. And then so is it, it is there a preference? Is there a reason to use a, a non-platform specific you know driver like this, or, or should I should I is there a real benefit to using one that's developed for I itself? I mean, oh man, this is such a this is such an in the weeds question for. Or is this a religious question? Maybe it might be a bit of a religious question. Okay. Uh, the the nice thing about the IDB 
connector and the IDBP connector is they'll just work. You don't need to install any other software. For the ODBC connector, you need to make sure you have an ODBC driver manager and the ODBC driver. But other than that, they work great. There's like 70 different uh, connection string options. So you can really tailor your database connections to how you want it. And then XML service. XML service is kind of showing its, its age a little bit. It's a little rusty around the edges. Uh, there is a replacement hopefully coming sometime for it. Uh, and when that gets there, hopefully the toolkit that we deliver will also be updated to, to wrap around that. Yeah, that may not be an entirely fair question to ask because I know even even in different technologies, I mean, we're here we're talking about individual drivers, but even technologies themselves, people will gravitate towards one or the other, and and that's and that's their whole world. And any any problem they have gets you know solved with that one tool that they use. Yeah, and I should mention that ODBC package. I am the chief maintainer of it. It's my brainchild, my brain baby. So, so of course, I'm going to say that that's the one that I think people, more people should use. Well, I'll give a fine. Then that's a fair response too. Thank you for that. So let's, let's back up a little bit to my, my question that my follow-up question from before. And, that's, and so how do I, if, if I've committed to this, if I've, if I've committed to the notion of getting started on this, mm. I want to load it now on my IBM I system. How, where do I go? How, what, what's the process? Sure. I would recommend if, if you're completely new to Node.js, what I would recommend is not installing it on IBM I right away. Install it on your Windows system or your Mac system or your Linux system, whatever you use to develop. And any sort of skills that you gain playing with it on that environment will transfer to IBM I, right? Most of the things that you need to learn is just kind of wrapping your head around the, the NPM ecosystem and how to import packages into your application and then just how to develop JavaScript code, right? If you do those things and just make tiny little, you know, example applications, those skills will transfer to IBMI. And they'll transfer identically? They, they will, should, yeah, they will. Okay. Node.js on IBMI is the same as Node.js on, on Windows, Node.js on Mac. It's kind of like a, the Java virtual machine, right? It kind of runs all of its code above the, the processor and then it translates it down into what the processor can understand. Terrific. So there's no dialect per se. There's no dialect. Okay, got it. All right. So I know. Um... But but going to your to your next question there, right? How do you get it on IBMI? So we have a package manager, our open source package manager called Yum. The easiest way to get it on your system is to to install Access Client Solutions ACS, and if it's a more recent version, it'll be on the left hand pane under System Management. I think they'll say Open Source package manager or something, you click on that and it will pop up and it'll say, hey, I noticed that you don't have the open source environment installed on your system. Do you want to install it? You say, yeah, that sounds great to me. And within two minutes, you'll have open source, the open source environment on your system uh, configured to talk to IBM server where we deliver the open source packages, including Node.js. And then you just, you click that button again, the open source package manager button pops up a little GUI for you. You select Node.js and download it onto your system. I should mention that you do need to be all object authority in order to, to run this script and to download the software onto your system. Well, so it's fair. not something, yeah, yeah, it's not something that any Joe Schmo developer can do, right? That's a fair expectation, I think. And what about updates and patches? Is it a similar, a similar process with ACS? Yep. Yep, exactly. Uh, so in ACS, there are three tabs. I think it's available, installed, and, and updates or something like that. 
Mm-hmm. And so you I should just go right now and look, but, but basically you, you go to the tab for the software that you have installed, the software that updates are available for, and it shows you everything that uh, has a pending update and you just tell it exactly what you want to update and it will download the software for you. We try to be very, very um, agile and responsive to the updates that occur in the wider community, right? So what will happen is usually there'll be some update to Node.js, whether that's because it's adding functionality or as a response to some vulnerability, they'll push it, they'll push the code, right? And then we try to, as quickly as possible, pull that code down, build it for IBMI and get you a update for your system so that you're not exposed for longer than, than you have to be. So I have one more question about the updates, and that is on the cadence. I mean, there's no predictable cadence as there, as there might be with, let's say, technology refreshes. This is a, it's, its own independent, it's in its own ecosystem. So the Node.js, when we're talking about things like patch updates that add maybe minor functionality or do CVEs, th- those just come out kind of as needed, right? But Node.js is a very, very consistently delivered technology that's backed by very big enterprises. So they have a very consistent release schedule where every, I want to say 18 months, they deliver a new major version of Node.js that becomes the the long-term support version, right? So it's very similar to how IBM delivers, you know, major releases. 7.3 is going to be in support for so long. 7.4 will be in support for so long. We'll get you a new version every three years, right? Things like that. The same, the same um, promises that IBM makes, the Node.js community makes as well. And I should mention that Node.js is it's not backed by any one organization. It's backed by what's called the, the, open, the open Linux Foundation, I think, owns it now. Or maybe, no, no, sorry, the Open JavaScript Foundation. They keep changing governance, right? But this, this foundation is supported by like Microsoft, Google, IBM. They all pay over a million dollars a year to be on the foundation board to ensure that this technology remains enterprise viable, that it remains performant, that it remains secure, right? So it's not just some small group of developers in their basement. It's backed by some of the biggest technology companies in the world. Again, and, that's, and that not only instills confidence, but it... it um it maintains confidence in the integrity of the, um, you know, that, that I can commit to a running a, 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 an enterprise strength application, you know, using this technology for sure. Absolutely. And, and I've seen claims and, and I don't know the veracity of these claims, but I've seen claims like every fortune 500 company uses Node.js somewhere in their technology stack. I have no way of confirming or denying that, but it wouldn't surprise me if at least 80% of them did. Right. Well, we've been talking about node Mark and, uh, one thing we haven't discussed at all, how are people using it? You know, so now we know that mm. we can run it on IBMI and it's it's a viable viable technology. But so what have you seen in, in the field? How are people actually de- deploying this and, and what, what applications are they using it for? Yeah, so so the world is really moving, you know, and has been moving for the last few years into this sort of microservice kind of space, right? So having these small applications that do kind of, one small piece of what you need to do. And maybe each microservice has one or two API endpoints. And so they do a small bit of work, talk to the database, get some, get some data back and send it back, right? So I've seen a lot of people use Node.js, use Node.js processes as just those microservices, right? You write a small application, you expose maybe, like I said, one or two API endpoints. Those APIs do a little bit of, you know, they get data in through the network, 
they do some maybe data manipulation, they talk to the database, the data layer, you know, down in your IBMI system, maybe they call a procedure that calls an RPG program, that RPG program runs some business process that you've had, you know, in your business for 30 years, it returns some sort of result, spits it back out to whoever called the API. And that API doesn't need to be a public API, right? It doesn't need to be something that's exposed to the whole internet, the whole world. It can be a private API that's inside your business, right? I think uh, that's how Amazon is designed, where every single thing that people that people develop and deliver has to be consumable as an API, API somehow. So what you're describing to me is, is a very powerful tool here or, or language, I, I would even say, but it's not intended as far as I can tell, to supplant RPG and SQL, things like that. It's, I mean, they, they, they play well together and, and you've seen applications where they do you know, peacefully coexist, right? They, they absolutely peacefully coexist. So uh, Node.js is definitely a technology that kind of sits above that, that normal RPG kind of space, right? RPG is really great for doing you know, data manipulations and implementing your business processes, right? You have all your data in the database taking that data out, doing some business process, delivering data back, that sort of thing. Node.js is really good at taking the results of those and doing a lot of kind of 21st century things with them, right? Setting them to other APIs, making them consumable by websites really easily. Um, there are NPM packages for doing things like sending SMS text messages that you know, in three lines of code, you can call an RPG program and return the result and send it to somebody's phone if, if there's an alert or something like that. But in my mind, I think that Node.js is really the perfect kind of partner for RPG and SQL, right? It's really a technology that can very easily take RPG code, code that people have written for the last 30 years, right? Code that businesses have invested millions of dollars into maintaining, and that is the backbone of their entire infrastructure, and allowing them to do kind of more agile things with it in the you know, web 2.0 sphere. With partner being the operative word here. Yeah, they should definitely not try to fight with one another. You could, you could write entire applications in Node.js where it takes data and it does all the processing inside the Node runtime itself, right? But Node.js, JavaScript is not strongly typed, right? So it's very kind of slow at figuring out, okay, what kind of data is this? What kind of manipulations do I need to do? RPG in comparison can run circles around it. So, and there's really no need to reinvent, you know, to rewrite your code in something if you already have all of these you know, working workflows that have been around for so long. Right, which only once again reinforces the adage, you know, use the best tool for the best requirement, whatever it happens to be, or for the absolutely, yeah. All right, so if I'm if I'm really convinced, and I want to get started with this, I need to look at a framework to get started with this. Is that true? Sure, sure. That's a great place to start. A lot of the examples out there will have you use some sort of framework to do something like create a simple web server. Yep. And the ones that so the ones that I've been reading about. To be fair, I'm I'm not today a Node guru by any by anybody's measure. So I am exploring it more and more and reading more about it. But the things that I've encountered so far are sales and partial, and uh, I think. Uh, the one that I, I see most often is Express. Yep. So is that the 800-pound gorilla? Express, if you look up a Hello World example in Node.js, I can almost guarantee you that it will be written in Express. Express has kind of been around for the longest amount of time. It was written, you know, probably 10 years ago. 
there's a lot of people that have a lot of a lot of strong opinions about Express, but it's still a very viable framework, right? So you go and look up how do I write a Node.js application to serve up a Hello World web page? It'll probably be written in Express. And maybe you play around with Express for a few weeks and then you say, okay, I want to do something a little more, you know, something that's been developed since then that maybe is less opinionated or something, and you go and find another framework to work with. Okay. So if, if we make the decision, or if a shop makes a decision that they want to go this direction, and they have no prior experience at all, what might they expect as a learning curve before they can start becoming truly productive, you know, to their, to their shops? Sure. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I would say that the, the learning curve for Node.js is definitely less than other languages like PHP or Java that you might use kind of on the back end. JavaScript is very easy language to understand, a very easy language to, to pick up and learn. The hardest part is just understanding how JavaScript script kind of plays in a wider kind of Node.js runtime, right? There, there's a few gotchas that you have to be aware of, but I would say within a month, you could be, you could be doing something really impressive with, with uh, Node.js. And we have resources out there for people if they want to go and learn, right? We have a repository called IBMI-OSS-Examples. It's on GitHub. Uh, we have lots and lots of Node.js examples on there that they can go and download and, and run themselves and pick through the code. We have a number of tutorials on there that they can read through. So, so there's resources out there, not just for you know, IBMI users, but if you go out there and just Google or whatever your favorite search engine is, right. look for <laughs> Node.js tutorials. Like I said, anything that you read there will be equally applicable to IBMI development. So don't be, don't be too concerned about finding IBMI specific uh, examples right off the bat. And you say one month, and that to me is not a long time at all. For so, a developer, no. Right, for a developer. But um, you also said earlier that you need to get your head wrapped around that. Is that, is that because is, is the paradigm shift for a, a traditional RPG COBOL developer, is, is the paradigm shift that great that it, it, they need some time to get to wrap their head around this? Or is there a natural progression towards this? I think it is a little bit of a, a difference from what they're used to. So there's this concept of asynchronous code in Node.js, which is a very big concept. And basically it means something's going to run and it's going to run in the background and you need to tell Node.js what to do in the meantime, right? And there are ways that you can write your code where you think you're telling it, hey, I want you to run this bit of code. And when it returns, you know, make a database call, let's say. And when it returns, I want you to handle the result. But what you're really telling it is, I want you to run this database call. Okay, now while that's running, I want you to handle the result, but it hasn't returned yet, right? So you can end up shooting yourself in the foot that way. You can also shoot yourself in the foot by telling it, hey, I want you to run this, I want you to run this database call. And in the meantime, I don't want you to do anything. I just want you to sit there and wait. And your whole application is gonna seem like it's frozen, right? So, so there's a few gotchas where you have to wrap your mind around things. Uh, in reality, once you kind of know what to look for, it's 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 second nature, but it'll take a little while to, to kind of work themselves into that paradigm. Well, to me, uh, some of the takeaways, even in our short discussion today, some of the big takeaways that, I, that I've gotten from this discussion, Mark, is first of all, that you know, Node is certainly here to stay. Its popularity is, is unsurprising to me, and it's certainly secure, and uh, anything that you're going to use in your shop, you can use with confidence. 
which is a, a very big thing. But the other thing that I want to I want to just throw out there, which you've illustrated in this discussion, is that that you're not alone out there. That there are many resources available to somebody who's just starting out. And uh, you know, and you said within a month or so. And I think that's that's a little bit, that's all part of the community supporting itself. Yeah, absolutely. So two great points. Node.js is definitely not going anywhere. There are there are people, right? Even including the original developer of Node.js who say, Node.js, there's all these things I hate about it. I want to create something different. And they've created, you know, replacements, drop-in replacements for Node.js. But Node.js is the 800-pound gorilla, to, to use a term that you used uh, before our podcast here, right? It has so much momentum. It has so many developers that it's not going anywhere. It's not a technology that's going to be abandoned in the next 10 years. I can guarantee that. And there are tons and tons of resources out there for you, right? There are so many new people interested in learning Node.js. There are so many people that understand Node.js that want to teach you. So really, there's no, there's no excuse not to learn it other than you don't want to learn it. Got it. Well, Mark, this has been quite the education uh, for me, certainly. And I think for anybody who's, who's uh, listening to this podcast, it's really chock full of a lot of good information. And I want to just thank you so much for taking your time uh, with me today and, uh, you know, hopefully, you know, shining light on some of the dark shadows that seem to be surrounding this technology for a lot of the, as I said earlier, the, the traditional RPG programmer and know it is this mysterious thing. And I guess, you know, you need not be afraid is, is the final word on this, right? Absolutely. And, and, Honestly, like I said, just, just download it onto your workstation, your Windows workstation, play with it, create a little server, serve up a hello world, right? See how easy it is to go from absolutely nothing to something really cool in, you know, three minutes time with, with development. Wow. Well, thank you. Well, I guess we'll leave it there, but I don't want to end this discussion without once again, congratulating you on your new position at IBM as advisory software developer. That's Really, again, that that just that just speaks to uh, IBM's commitment to you and Node and your, your career and all these things. So it's, it's all good. It's goodness all around. How's that sound? Perfect. Well, Charlie, you can buy me a drink in St. Louis, and, and I we'll will. Even... I will take you up. I, I will take myself <laughs> up on that and make sure that we uh, get that done for sure. Perfect, Mark. It's always a pleasure. Thank you so much, and um, we'll see you down the road. Thanks. Perfect. Again.